0: Today, on Edge Effects.
1: We would start with a traveling exhibit. And of course, we go to people. So you don't have to spend an hour crossing Chicago to see us, that we go to all neighborhoods.
0: Geographer Rachel Boothby discusses the National Vegetarian Museum with its founder, Kay Stepkin, and Dr. Connie Johnston, a geographer and member of the board of directors of the National Vegetarian Museum. Together, They dive deep into Chicago's history of vegetarianism, reflect on how Chicago's vegetarian scene has changed since the 1970s, and explain why the U.S. needs a National Vegetarian Museum now.
2: Connie and Kay, thank you so much for talking with us today.
3: Thank you, Rachel.
2: Before we talk about the museum specifically, Kay, I'd like to hear about your own experiences growing up in Chicago. People often think of Chicago as the center of meatpacking in the U.S. Its union stockyards at one point produced a majority of the nation's meat. So what was your personal path to vegetarianism?
1: Well, starting at the beginning, I would say that I came right out of Chicago's meat industry. Uh, My dad was a meat jobber. He bought meat from large factories and sold it to restaurants, hot dog stands in his big red truck. You know, in our house, I remember coming home from grammar school. This is a horrid thought to me today, but at the time, it was wonderful. I remember coming home from grammar school, and I would see there would be a big pot on the stove, and in that pot would be the tongue of a cow (laughs) boiling in this pot. I remember it had little bumps on it. You know, at the time, I thought it was great. We always had a salami hanging from a hook in the kitchen. So that was early, early me. (laughs) But my path to vegetarianism started after I graduated from college. I moved to California for a while. And one night my roommate was out. I had nothing to do. I started looking through her books, and I came across Thunderball, a James Bond book. And I remember it was like right in the beginning, had, had this couple of paragraphs been toward the end of the book, maybe I wouldn't even be a vegetarian today. But, uh, it, you know, in the first 12 pages, uh, Bond is run down. He has no energy. He's unmotivated. And his boss, M sits him down and has a serious talk with him. And uh, Bond doesn't know what he's talking about. Bond says that it's no problem. He's taking medicine for his problems that, you know, so he, he'll be fine. And M, his boss, responds that medicine doesn't really cure you. It only will hide your symptoms. And then M goes on. Again, this is all maybe just two, three, four paragraphs. M goes on to tell him how poor the food we eat is. And I remember him saying something about all the nutrients we take out of bread, out of wheat, like a dozen or so, and put back seven, and we call it enriched. And I don't know why, but this fascinated me. I just... I had never heard any thoughts like this before. And, you know, at the time, I thought I knew all about health. Uh, One of my mother's mantras was, your health is the most important thing. And what that meant to me, in my family, what it meant was that if anything hurts, you go to the doctor and you do whatever he tells you. And that's what makes you healthy. And uh, so I went to the library in Berkeley the next day, and I came home with an armload of books on food, on leading a natural life. And that was the beginning of my path toward vegetarianism. It took maybe another six years for me to actually stop eating meat. There was a lot to read at the time, even though I knew of no movement. I I did not know one vegetarian, but I read Adele Davis and, you know, I started cooking brown rice instead of white. And uh, I read Rachel Carson. I knew that we were having a lot of environmental problems. I did not know of any animal rights movement yet, but I do remember reading something about the horrible conditions that the animals endure uh, on the farms where, where they're raised. And so I just kept slowly learning for the next five or six years.
2: Well, I've heard of Berkeley turning people into vegetarians, but never James (laughs) Bond. That's a first. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you then moved back to Chicago. You opened a vegetarian restaurant in 1971 called The Bread Shop. What was that? Actually, I said the the
1: restaurant came four years later. Ah, okay. uh, But I opened the the bread shop, which was a bakery and a grocery store. And we'd make pizza and soups, and, you know, we were selling food as well.
2: And everything was vegetarian from the get-go. It was all vegetarian,
1: not yet vegan.
2: And you said. Uh, at the time when you became a vegetarian, you didn't know any other vegetarians. Was there right. any vegetarian community in Chicago at, at, in 1971 when you opened your store?
1: There was not, because I was visiting all the health food stores at that time, and I remember um, there was there was no bulk food yet; it was packaged. The health food stores were mainly selling vitamins. You could buy, you know, organic products in, in packages. I remember they would bring in organic chickens on the weekends, which at the time I was eating. But no, there was no vegetarian community, and so I assumed that there never had been.
2: Hmm. Yeah. So I learned in the process of uh, doing a little research to talk to you today, um, that Chicago, in fact, has a very long history of vegetarianism. So can I know. You, can you tell us That's more about thrilling. that. <laughs> it is. It's really interesting.
1: It actually started uh, on the East Coast around Philadelphia when a group of Bible Christians came to our country from England, and uh, the vegetarian movement was centered there. But by the late 1800s, the epicenter of our movement moved to Chicago with the World's Fair that was held In the late 1800s, the Columbian Exposition. Mm -hmm. With the Columbian Exposition, the epicenter moved to Chicago. People came from all over Europe to Chicago to be part of uh, the big display that we had there. And there was also, um, you know, like Kellogg came. He was one of the speakers. They had a conference at the Art Institute, which had just opened up a couple years earlier. So, yeah, that brought vegetarianism right to Chicago.
2: Very cool. How have you seen the relationship between restaurants in particular and vegetarianism change over the past few decades?
1: Oh, I remember the first restaurant in Chicago that we called Vegetarian Friendly. They still had meat, some meat, but Heartland Cafe opened in the mid-70s and it was called Vegetarian Friendly and it was quite unusual. You know, one by one, back then, a a vegetarian restaurant would open. Sometimes it would close. Maybe we'd have two or three at a time. Today, we have over 50, and we have hundreds of what we would call vegetarian-friendly restaurants. Most every restaurant that opens today in Chicago has vegetarian and vegan options. And sometimes even on the menu, you know, it'll have a vegetarian section. So it has been quite a big change. And restaurants today, uh, which they weren't back then, uh, are also quite accommodating and can veganize dishes for you if you ask for it.
2: And that feels significantly different than when you first started out. Significantly
1: different. Yes, it does.
2: Yeah, like, you know, back 40 years ago, there would be two vegetarian
1: restaurants or three to over fifty, that's quite a difference. Mm-hmm. And it's we have a, a trifold we put out with the museum that talks a little bit about the museum and who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. And in the center fold we list these fifty plus vegetarian restaurants. And I'd say we reprint the trifold every two months, every three months, every time we reprint it, we're adding restaurants. So of course sometimes we're also omitting some <laughs> But uh, that's, that is just always changing.
2: That's really incredible. And we'll definitely return and talk about the museum, what you can find there. So we'll, we'll hold that thought for a minute. Uh, okay. I'm interested to know a little bit more about how your own thinking about vegetarianism has shifted over time. I know that now you consider yourself a vegan. So what, what yeah. is it that's happened between 1970 and today?
1: Well, it was, it was interesting really. It, it, so it took me five or so years to totally stop eating meat. But once I thought of it, well, so I was, I changed my cooking habits. One day back then, I realized, gosh, I haven't had meat in over a week. That's it. I'm not, I'm not eating it anymore. And that was the end. So I mean, I consider that I became a vegetarian overnight, even though it brewed in me for You know, several years. Veganism, vegan was different. I actually, I had. There was a book out put out in the seventies. Did you ever hear of Arnold Er Ehrich?
2: E H
1: R E R T maybe Arnold Ehrich. He wrote a book called The Mucusless Diet. We weren't using the word vegan yet, but it was about vegan eating. It was so repulsive to me that word mucus was so Mm -hmm. repulsive that I think he turned me off veganism for decades. Hmm. Whenever I would think about it, I would think of him. And so I approached, I came toward veganism, I just crept toward it so slowly. When I first stopped eating meat, I ate so much cheese, you know, I ate a lot of eggs. And just very, very slowly through the years, I stopped eating them. Um and toward the end, it was just, oh, there was one place I would go to eat lunch occasionally, and they all they would have was an egg sandwich. And one day I thought about it, and I was thinking about, you know, I would really like to be a vegan, and, and here I just have this egg sandwich every once in a while, and it occurred to me, well, why don't you just stop going to that restaurant? And I did, and, that, and then that was the end of it. Um, and it, what's, what's sort of ironic about this is it's so much easier to be a vegan today than it was in the 1970s. Uh, there is so much more support. There are things to order when you go out. There's lots of people who can help you. There's books to read. Uh, and so that it took me so long to be a vegan. And back then, there was no support, and I became a vegetarian almost overnight. So I don't know. I guess each person has their own path that they have to take. Um, But it does seem to me that it's much easier for people today.
2: So, Connie, I'd love to turn and hear a little bit from you at this point, since you study social ideas about farm animal welfare um, and Mm -hmm. the shift from vegetarianism to veganism, I think, makes us question in a in a much more nuanced way our relationship to these farm mm-hmm. animals. So what brought you to this topic in your own work?
3: Thanks, Rachel. I would say my interest in the topic really started from a a personal perspective, uh, less of an academic perspective. I have always um, been incredibly interested in non-human animals. I've always been very interested in our human relationship with them. Um, I can't even remember a time when that kind of started for me. It's just, it seems to have been some sort of an inherent interest in me. And I've, as a child, I would think about, well, I always felt a real kinship with non-human animals, and I was always curious. As to why everyone didn't feel as I did. That was always really strange to me that, that, you know, some people were not interested in animals or didn't feel that kinship or, or didn't feel compassion toward them. It didn't occur to me that eating animals <laughs> as my family did was problematic in any way. It didn't <laughs> took me until I got to college to, for that light bulb to actually go on and say, oh, wait, wait, this is, this is not a good thing. If I have this, if I feel this kinship, if I feel this relationship, I actually stopped eating meat. Not, I did not become vegan, but I stopped eating meat in college. So that's been a good while back. That was during a time when animal advocacy and really took hold in the United States. And uh, the word animal rights started to be heard kind of in public discourse. And organizations like PETA really developed and uh, got a lot of name recognition and brought some of these societal issues with our, our relationship with animals kind of more out into the, out into the public. So being vegetarian was a, a very personal thing for me and one of the things that I started off being more interested in in terms of our social values and our relationships with animals was more uh, directed toward animal experimentation in, in medical and, and scientific settings. And so when I went back I went back to get my PhD a bit later than a lot of folks did but when I went back to get my PhD that was initially what I thought I would want to look at was um, you know animals and medical research but one of the a couple of things happened that shifted me to looking more at farmed animals and industrial agriculture and our relationship with those animals first of all in reading some things that had come out that said in terms of animal suffering that the farming of animals for meat accounted for uh, way more animals being affected by cruel practices than, than really any other thing, uh, any other kind of exploit, exploitive use that, that humans made of them. So that was one thing that made me start thinking more about uh, exploring that topic. And also, my dissertation advisor was very. She was becoming very interested at, at the time that I was working with her in graduate school. She, be, she was becoming very interested in industrial animal agriculture, um, and she was coming at it probably. I, I would say more from uh, maybe an economic perspective, and thinking about uh, and not not that she wasn't concerned about the ethics of it, but she was kind of approaching it through kind of an economic analytical lens, and so in wanting to kind of work on something that uh, that my dissertation advisor also had a real interest in, and I felt like our work could kind of mesh, and that we could kind of foster each other's pursuits, that was what made me shift to looking more at farmed animals. I was still very interested in kind of the science aspect. I've always been interested in animal science and what we learn about animals through science, but also how... Western science tends to take a very exploitive attitude toward animals, so that's for me kind of where the idea of looking at farm animal welfare science—you know, how do we get ideas about uh, what their welfare is, what their capacity for sentience is—and so looking at uh, looking at that aspect of animal agriculture and and the the really kind of a growing field of uh, of the science of farm animal welfare that only really. A, Came about for me maybe a, a decade or so ago. So that's my long-winded and circuitous route to to looking at uh, our kind of our social uh, social attitudes toward and, uh, and our societal relationship with farmed animals.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I'm really struck in your response that um, it seems like your work bridges or brings together or just involves. People from very different backgrounds with maybe very different ideas about animals and farm animals and what they are. So I'm interested if you could just say a little bit more about, as a researcher, what it's like to work with both activists and policymakers and meat scientists.
3: Right. Yes, yes. Um, Yes, certainly, as you say, working with and engaging with people with very different perspectives was certainly part and parcel of the research that I've done, and and especially when I was doing my dissertation research. A big part of the research that I did was actually interviewing farm animal welfare scientists in both the United States and in, in several locations in Europe. When I developed my dissertation project and, and was trying to figure out exactly what I was going to do and I had decided that a big component of what I wanted to do was to actually try to talk with these folks that were doing this science and maybe visit with them and perhaps even shadow them in some of the work that they were doing. My dissertation committee was very concerned that, especially in the United States, given how secretive uh, a lot of the meat industry can be about their practices, that I might have a really difficult time actually finding anyone that would <laughs> that would talk to me at all but surprisingly and I really and I look back on it and I, and I kind of even wonder how this all kind of came together um, I, I was able to talk to talk to a number of different farm animal welfare scientists, and I think having the backing of an institution. Um, I also had a, I had had gotten a um, a National Science Foundation grant for doing doing my research. So I think having some credibility and not coming across as someone who was going to be trying to do an expose. I think that kind of helped gain me entree into talking with these folks. Everyone that I talked with, whether they were doing research that was funded by, um, you know, some uh, part of the meat industry, or whether they were, you know, in the United States or in Europe, all of these folks actually had this desire to make these animals' lives better. They were not necessarily vegetarian themselves, They certainly not vegan. Some of them worked in, in very close partnership with um, animal producers, but they all felt that in some way they were concerned with welfare and they were trying to make these animals' lives better in some way. So that, in a lot of ways, bridged a divide. I also tried to put some of the stronger feelings that I had about some of these practices to one side and for good or for ill, kind of approach all of this work in a more, quote unquote, objective manner and to kind of leave judgments aside so that I could talk to people in a respectful way. So that being said, people were actually very generous with their time. They were very very generous with their information. Um, They treated me very respectfully and, and, um, and I tried to respond in kind. Um, However, there were some situations that I was in that were emotionally difficult because of the things that I saw. Um, And it was very hard to be in certain situations and feel that I was, that by not speaking out in that moment, that I was in some way condoning uh, the practices, um, but also knowing that there was really nothing (laughs) at all that I could do without not being able to take my take my project forward and also uh, disrupting the trust relationship that I had built with the folks that had allowed me to to come and talk with them and also to go into to some of the different locations where they were where they were doing research.
2: How do you think our modern system of animal agricultural production shapes current social ideas about eating meat?
3: Well that's a an interesting question and it's one that I feel like a big part of that answer is that so much of this production is invisible to most people. And that has not always been the case in the United States and in societies that are similar to the United States. People uh, in the past that had, had eaten meat you know, several decades ago or, or a century ago, perhaps now, would probably know someone who raised those animals, or maybe they would raise the animals themselves, or they would at least see them somewhere in their daily lives. Today, none of that None of that is seen for most people, for the vast majority of people that that eat meat. They don't see the animals. They don't see the conditions under which they're raised. They don't see the slaughterhouses or certainly not the slaughter process. And I think that makes it much easier for people to not have to kind of come to terms with the uh, with the living creatures that they do eat um, and not take responsibility for how they're raised and the kind of death that they have because all of it is, is really all most people see is that package of whatever the part of meat is in the grocery store. And maybe it's got a label that says humanely raised or humane certified or something like that. But even with that, most people don't really have any idea as to what that really means and what the conditions were. So I think that makes it very easy to kind of go about uh, meat eating without engaging with with the reality of that. And most of the um, meat producers, certainly the industrial animal agricultural industry, very much likes it that way. They would much prefer for folks to never have any idea as to what goes on in a factory farm or in a slaughterhouse. And that is seen by um, the fact that these kinds of facilities are placed in areas that people don't encounter them. They are frequently... Uh, under really tight security. So that, that invisibility, I think, is probably the key factor that, that really shapes how people go about the process of meat eating in the United States today. And for a lot of folks, even if you are aware of the harmful effects of an activity or something that you you know that you engage in. For a lot of folks, that doesn't change it. You know, you'll you'll make your you know your reasons for continuing to do it. I mean, I know I certainly did before I became a, a vegan. But I think making folks aware and allowing people to kind of reengage with the living, breathing creatures that are, that start out that way and then end up on the on the dinner table would be a better way for meat production to happen. At least let uh, let individuals who are going to eat meat kind of know what that process is and then decide whether or not they want to engage in it as opposed to keeping it so invisible.
2: How did your work bring you to K and the National Vegetarian Museum? That was probably more of just
3: kind of personal circumstance. I moved to Chicago to take a position at DePaul in the fall of 2016, but I was at um, a vegetarian related event that fall and just happened upon the display that the National Vegetarian Museum had there. And I must have written my name down <laughs> down on something because um, I was contacted sometime later by Kay to uh, to come to an event that, that she was hosting. and I did, and was really very intrigued by the vegetarian museum and um, felt that it was a different kind of organization was definitely taking a different approach and focusing on the culture of vegetarianism, if you will. And so this was something that I, as I said, I felt very interested in, I was intrigued by, and I felt that I wanted to be involved with and felt like as, a, as an academic, I could perhaps be useful.
2: I think this is a good segue into talking about the vegetarian museum itself. So where, where can people find it and what will they see when they do?
1: So we move every month or two. Sometimes we stay in a venue for two months. Every place we stay, we bring a program to them. So we'll have one or two programs every place we are. You would go to our website, www.vegmuse.org, V-E-G-M-U-S-E.org, to see where we are presently. The museum itself, it consists of 12 panels. Each one is about three feet wide by about seven feet tall. They interlock with each other. There's also a a video of Victoria Moran, who is um, an author. She gives a five or six minute uh, view of our history. And so each of the panels, you know, covers a different aspect of our history. We we start with the ancient world, uh, where vegetarianism is actually mentioned in the Old Testament in Genesis. Uh, Without using the word vegetarian, Uh, Bible Christians um, who were probably influenced by India uh, settling on the East Coast. We go into Chicago's great history in the 1800s. We have a panel on famous vegetarians. We have a panel on vegetarian organization, national vegetarian organizations, and oh, uh, maybe most important that I left out our beginning panels. Uh, cover the three main aspects of vegetarianism. So we have a panel on health aspects, another on environmental, and another on the animal issues.
2: Great. So I'm interested from both of your perspectives, which might be the same or might be different, why does the United States need a National Vegetarian Museum and why now?
1: Um, I think it's quite important, like, so when I became a vegetarian, I did not know another vegetarian, I thought I was all alone, I didn't get ideas from anyone, I, when I started the bread shop in in 1971, I had such goofy ideas that I carried on for a number of years, um, we, we didn't use any machineries, uh, any machinery, we made the bread by hand, Uh, We had no division of labor. Everybody did everything. Everybody made all decisions. I I had no business sense, and I didn't gain any for some years. Uh, So I think it's important to know that we are part of a large movement, that the movement did not just start uh, in the 1970s, but we are hundreds, thousands, actually, of years old. And I think that just that knowledge gives us strength. And also, uh, people knowing that they can, um, so they can learn from people that came before, and that they have the support of of others in the movement. I uh, I think that is all quite important.
3: And so I would just add uh, add to that. Um, I absolutely agree with everything that Kay has said, and I think it's also we have such a dominant narrative in this country uh, of meat eating that you know that we are a meat eating society and that it's not that that is not true but it's about interjecting the national vegetarian museum is about interjecting uh, a narrative that contests that monolithic one of meat eating and makes it known that, as Kay was saying, there is a history of vegetarianism there is even in this country um, that there is um, that there is a vegetarian uh, a strong and vibrant and growing vegetarian community. Um, it's not something that just started a few decades ago, but has been uh, has been part of of the United states for um for quite some time and so to let people know to to provide this other narrative to indicate that it's we may be smaller in many ways than the the i guess the dominant dietary perspective but we do exist and have existed and that there is a um that there is a story to tell there there is a history there is a community and that it it may be smaller but it's it is not it is not marginal and it's getting less marginal as as we move through time
2: great So what is it that you hope that individuals who visit your exhibit will take away from this, Kay?
1: As Connie mentioned, uh, I hope they take away the realization that vegetarianism has always been a part of human culture, that our history is deep and it's strong, also that they take away the fact that our great movement is really exploding, not only in Chicago, but all over the planet that they take away the knowledge of the interconnectedness between our environmental problems, our health problems, and just the horrible conditions that we raise our animals in, that all of that is connected and has a solution. And I guess, uh, which I had mentioned before, the knowledge that, that you are not alone in changing your lifestyle, but our great movement can help nurture you and can teach you.
2: And where would you like the museum to go from here?
1: From so in the beginning, in my mind, we would start with a traveling exhibit. It was for practical purposes, that we don't have to pay rent, we don't have to buy a building. And, of course, we go to people, so you don't have to spend an hour crossing Chicago to see us, that we go to all neighborhoods. But I could see us having a permanent location. Uh, we had to, in creating the museum, we actually left out a lot more than we put in. And so I could see us having a permanent spot, having it really grow, and taking this traveling exhibit and send it around the country to other organizations. And because Chicago is such a museum town, we have so many skilled museum people here who uh, you know who helped who helped us create the museum. And we can even make a special panel for whatever city the museum is going to or for what, whatever organization in another city will be hosting us. And th- those are my thoughts.
2: Wonderful. Kay, Connie, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: There is one thing I have. I don't know if, it, if, if, uh, if this is relevant, but why did I start a museum? What, what, what prompted the museum?
2: Great question. Um, <laughs> Certainly a question <laughs> that I should have asked. Please, I'd love to hear the answer.
1: Okay, it was five or six years ago. I had mentioned uh, the Heartland Cafe and Michael James because they were the first vegetarian-friendly restaurant in Chicago. Well, they have a radio show called Live from the Heartland. Although uh, Heartland just closed about a month ago, but they still have a radio show. And I was invited on the radio show five or six years ago to talk about Chicago's vegetarian history, which I thought I knew, which I thought I started. <laughs> and I went on, and Michael had the same thoughts as I did. And we talked about our history and how the bread shop was the first vegetarian business in Chicago. And the talk went well. And afterwards, I started getting phone calls to speak at other organizations. And when I had the bread shop, I didn't have a computer at that time, but now I did. And as I started getting calls to speak at other organizations, so now I go online. And I thought, really, I thought i Knew most everything, but maybe there's one or two little tidbits that I could learn. And it just blew my mind what I learned, Um, you know, part of which we've already mentioned, but that Chicago has such a long, a deep, and a strong history. And that our first vegetarian restaurant opened in 1900. And I thought, you, you know, if I don't know this, who have such a passion for it, I don't think too many other people know either that we had a history. And for sure, young people don't know. Because, in general, when you're the younger you are, the more interested you are in the present, not in the past. And I thought, people have to know this. This, this will make us stronger. And that was the impetus behind the museum.
2: Oh, shoot. Now I have another question. <laughs> I'll ask one more question. My question is it's often said that Upton Sinclair, when he wrote his famous book, the jungle, that he was aiming for people's hearts, but instead hit their stomachs, <laughs> right? So I guess I'm curious to know your thoughts on engaging with people in this idea of animal welfare, people's hearts versus their stomachs.
1: Well, I think that, it's, uh, that any way you can reach people about these issues is the right way. And just as there's, there's a lot of ways we can reach people... There's a lot of variety in the people that we're reaching and different people will be motivated by different aspects of what we're trying to do. So I I think it's all good, really. You know, some people are interested in their health. Some people are interested in the animals. Other people have mainly environmental concerns. It all takes us to the same place in the end and it's where we need to go.
3: Yes, and Sinclair, his book was, was... originally to be an expose of worker conditions in the Chicago slaughterhouses. And a number of people have said that after they read The Jungle, that that gave them uh, an awareness that they were more moved by what happened and what he described as happening with the animals. And I know that certainly was the case for me. And so I think that as Kay is saying, you reach people in lots of different ways and people will be moved in lots of different ways. And so I I think something like the work of Sinclair, we we can't really disentangle the lives of the workers in slaughterhouses from the animals that were there. They were both being exploited and today it's the same situation and also our, the the natural environment is being exploited by um, industrial meat production and so these things are you can't really disentangle these things and various different aspects of these issues will resonate with with different people but the kind of meat production systems, these large meat production systems that we have in the United States and the world today are you know, they, they are problematic in many, many, many ways and however someone becomes aware of those problems, that will touch the thread that leads them to these other problems as well. So I think that, uh, yes, whether you start out with the heart or the stomach or the head, those pieces are all connected. And, and once you enter into that from one direction, you'll see the other aspects as well. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Connie and Kay. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today.
3: Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, it's been great pleasure as well.
2: That was
0: Kay Stepkin, Dr. Connie Johnston, and Rachel Boothby in conversation. Kay Stepkin is the founder of the National Vegetarian Museum and a pioneer of the vegetarian and natural food movements in Chicago. Learn more about her career and find out where the National Vegetarian Museum will be in a neighborhood near you at vegmuse.org. That's vegmus dot O-R-G. Dr. Connie Johnston is a professional lecturer in the Department of Geography at DePaul University in Chicago and on the board of directors of the National Vegetarian Museum. She is the author and co author of a number of publications about human animal relationships, including Humans and Animals A Geography of Coexistence, published in 2017. Rachel Boothby is a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of Wisconsin Madison. She studies the cultural geography of the American food system and consumption more broadly from a historical perspective, from the farm-to-table restaurant movement to Lunchables. Rachel was a founding editorial board member and former managing editor of EdgeFX and is currently working with the Center for Culture, History, and Environment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by me, Laura Perry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.